Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. In this week's episode, we discuss the Petrkivka painting style, its historical origins, and how the art form lives on today. This and more on Zakrdonia Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. In our previous episode, we learned that a Ukrainian chef was petitioning UNESCO to get borscht recognized as a Ukrainian dish. And we mentioned that Ukraine already has three phenomena on the representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. Uh, one of these, and the one we're going to explore today, is the Petrokyivka style of painting. Originating from the village of Petrokyivka in the Dnipropetrovsk region, uh, in folkloric belief, these paintings protected people from sorrow and evil. They were usually decorative murals that were painted on the whitewashed walls of peasant houses and then later turned into paintings on paper, which could then be attached to the walls. So is this like the stereotypical like Ukrainian house decorations that you see? I mean, in this region at least, yeah. It's uh, characterised by um, bright colours and natural elements, which are based on the local flora and fauna. And we're usually made up of various flowers like asters, dahlias, roses and chamomile, um, mixed with fruits uh, to create fantasy compositions of bouquets or freezes. And um, also sometimes included images of people, birds and animals. And um, they weren't just... Uh, to decorate houses, they also decorated things inside houses like bottles, plates, musical instruments, um, just anything that they wanted to decorate, they could decorate. They also decorated like stoving and some parts of the walls in the house and then the frames of the windows and doors as well. So, it wasn't just like items, it was also like parts of the house as well. Pretty cool. So, um, Petrikivka as an art style can trace its roots back to the 17th century and um, it's believed the style was developed by Ukrainians who settled in the central part of Ukraine in present-day Dnipropetrovsk Oblast and these Ukrainians were from various parts of Ukraine so you had people from Podilia which is in the west and then you had people from Slobodyanshina which is from the northeastern part of Ukraine centered near Kharkiv and kind of spills over into what is now present-day Russia. So, whilst there's no evidence of Petrikivka-esque style paintings in Podilia, there are reports of similar style murals in Slobodyanshina, but there's no, like, there, it still needs a lot more research to kind of confirm how the art style migrated and evolved into its present-day form in, in Petrikivka now. It wasn't until the early 1900s when the art style was properly documented by Dmitro Yavornetsky, who took an interest in it during his travels around Ukraine, and he got his students to trace the art style. And I think, Brianna, you did a bit more research into how to how you paint Petrikivka. Yes, yeah, so while all paintings can technically be considered two-dimensional, these ones are especially so because the artists weren't looking to depict a realistic perspective. Um, many of the elements are depicted as silhouettes, and figures of birds, animals, and people are usually shown in profile, while flowers are shown front on. Now, this painting style is done with four brush strokes. So there's the hrabinats, or the comb, which starts with heavy pressure and a thick line, and then finishes with light pressure and a thin line. Uh, this type of stroke is given this name because 
A bunch of them together looks like a hair comb, and it is commonly used to paint flowers, leaves, and grasses with rounded shapes. Uh, the second one that you have is sort of the opposite, uh, called a zernyatko, or seed, and it starts light and ends heavy. Um, when these types of strokes are used on either side of a stem, they look like an ear of wheat, and would also be used to create leaves with jagged edges. The third stroke is called the horishok, or nut, which is made with two hrabinat strokes that are curved and placed next to each other. Um, and then when the negative space in the middle is filled with a zernyatko stroke, it looks like a hazelnut, which is used to depict uh, flower buds and other such things. And the last stroke, which is called the parakidni mazok, or the transitional stroke, is uh as, as the name implies, just, you know, a stroke to get you from A to B. So you dip it uh, into, you know, two or more different colours and then the line that you paint ends up being a gradient from, like, one colour to the next. It's pretty cool. Now, Andre, you had something about how they make these paints. Yeah, so a lot of the paint that they used was traditionally extracted from herbs, leaves, berries and flowers to make um, the types of paints that they used. And this is before any uh, synthetic dyes were created. So, um, for example, red dye was made from cherry juice, green was from grass and nightshades, blue was from snowdrop flowers, and then the various shades of yellow were obtained from sunflower petals, onion skin, and bark of apple seedlings. I'm surprised onion skin was used for yellow. Like, I don't, you don't really see that as a yellow. Yeah, I would have thought, like, you would have used, like, a yellow flower, but... Well, they did, the sunflower petals. But, like, onions as well to make yellow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're sort of brown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you think it turn more brown. But maybe it's because of, like, once you've cut it and stuff, it's kind of like a... It's not, like, white-white, but... People are a lot more creative back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, then, with these pigments, they were then thinned using egg yolk and milk, and then they were fixed to the wall using cherry, sh cherry sap or sugar. And it was only until after the war synthetic dyes were used... Uh, in these paintings. Now, the painting tools were originally made from uh, brushes made from tree shoots, stems of marsh grasses, and cat hair. Which is kind of surprising that they used cat hair, not horse hair. Because I thought. Well, it's probably because they didn't have as much. Well, actually, no, because it's the steppe region of Ukraine. Or maybe it's because, like, with cat hair, you can be, like, more detailed because it's softer. While, like, horse hair is more stiff. Because I know they use, like, horsehair for instruments to make the strings, don't they? Yeah, I think horsehair's for more, like, stiff painting. Like, when you just want to, like, just do a general area. And then, well, with cat hair, it's more flexible and so. But what I find really interesting is that um, when they're making these paintings onto the walls, they're not actually, uh, you know, doing any preliminary markings, you know, to say, oh, I want this flower to go here and this stem to go that way. Like, they think about it first and they don't actually... Oh, so you're saying it's all, like, mapped out in their head and they kind of just go... As they f like how they feel as they paint. Yeah, it's sort of like freehand onto the wall. I know mine would be pretty bad and pretty shiny. <laughs> a lot of really crap looking flowers. <laughs> yeah, and so with the style, you know, kind of being established in the parameters that we just described, it remained on that village level where, you know, it was all natural. Uh, like it was, it wasn't like a regulated kind of artistic art form, sort of like other art styles are like renaissance art or like modernism and all that stuff um however this started to change 
um, like we mentioned earlier in the 1900s when Yavornetsky kind of started to document the art style and kind of bring it uh, wider attention. And um, Petrikivka uh, was first exhibited in St. Petersburg, which I think is quite cool that, you know, it was the capital of Russia at the time and they were exhibiting, you know, local Ukrainian art. Um, and then afterwards, um, in the Soviet Union, the art style gained like wide ranging popularity on like a national level for the Soviet Union. But even before that, um, on a local level, the art style had started to spread to such an extent that, um, like you said before, like they started making templates for people to stick on their walls called Malovke, which I think is quite cool that even like in the early like 1900s, you could buy pre-made Petrikivka to stick on your house, which is something I would have definitely done <laughs> if I lived back there. Well, yeah, because um, they had to like re-whitewash the walls every couple of years so that they could redo the paintings. And if you didn't have the painter nearby, like obviously you couldn't do it because it was um, only the masters sort of did the painting around the village. So having those Malovke really made it more accessible for a lot of people, which is really cool. And... Once it had gained, like, popularity in the Soviet Union, they even opened up a school in the art style in 1935 in the Salo of Petrikivka, which kind of became, like, the nucleus of the art style. And to this day, you have the Petrikivka Center of Folk Art, which fulfills that role in the village and, like, the for the art style generally. And it's gotten, like, so big that they have, like, a festival dedicated to Petrikivka. So they started it off in, like, Dnipro, which is, like, the capital city of the region but it's now migrated back to the traditional village and is like a major event what i thought was really interesting um not only has it become popular in the sense that you know this festival's come back to uh, the home village but it's also spread to um around ukraine as well so um they made bank credit cards and uh clothing patterns and in 2000 2001 and 13 Ukurposhta, the um, Ukrainian postal service, Ukrainian postal service issued a series of stamps in this style. And in 2016 as well, the National Bank of Ukraine minted a commemorative coin with the value of five hryvnias and devoted to Petrikivka art. Um, Andre, I remember you came home from Tabir one time, having done Petrikivka at Tabir. Like, did you find it hard? Uh, not really. We, we we were given a stencil of like. What to draw? Cause, also, Malovka. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, like, um, none of us had actually ever, like, most of us hadn't, like, either seen or had ever, like, attempted it before. So, it was kind of all, like, new ground for us. And so, like, we were taught that um, a lot of the time you'd use, like, bright colors and you wouldn't, like, vary your colors too much. And so, like, um, we were drawing this flower and... Um, yeah, but like we didn't, we didn't really have like a lot of the techniques down. I think we were just all like doing like your normal painting. But like the instructor, she, I think she was uh, a lot more delicate in her painting and like I think used more of the detailing rather than what we were doing, just like swishing around the paint stick. <laughs> well, mum was still, brush, yeah. mum was still impressed when you came home with a with an artwork. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think the other thing that's really fascinating is that in more modern times as well, there's been a bit of resurgence of using this art form in other ways. And probably the best example from recent memory is Eurovision 2017, 
that was hosted by Ukraine, where the art form was used to build the brand and the look, um, the background look for Eurovision, uh, using a lot of the floral patterns uh, that you know match this style. And so, obviously, what's what's great is to see you know a modern influx, um, a modern interpretation for this style uh, that's been around for a very long time in Ukraine. And even though, like, Petrikivka has now, like, you know, gone global, the art style itself has kind of remained on that, on, like, a family level. So, a lot of the most well-known artists of Petrikivka, um, even to this day, come from, like, a small, close-knit circle of artistic families that specialize in the art form. And, like, it shows you, you know, like, how deeply embedded the culture, or, like, Petrikivka is part of Ukrainian culture, that, like, even though it's, like, an art form from, like, one little village it's now like spread all over ukraine and like you know even gone globally to represent ukraine in the news this week ukraine has announced that it is temporarily closing the chernobyl exclusion zone to tourists due to the current spike of coronavirus cases the closure will last until november 30th However, the zone will continue to operate in all other spheres. In response to recent protests against Ukraine's constitutional court, President Zelensky has submitted a bill to Parliament to dismiss all judges of the court. The bill has been widely criticised as anti-democratic and it looks unlikely to pass. Zelensky has hit back saying that he will dissolve Parliament if the bill is not passed. November is Holodomor Awareness Month. There is currently a global effort led by Canada to have the word Holodomor included in the world's English language dictionaries. To sign their petition, please find the link on our various social media pages. The Italian Court of Appeal has ruled to fully acquit Ukrainian National Guardsman Vitaly Markiev of complicity in the death of Andrea Rokeli and Andriy Mironov. The Italian reporter and his Russian interpreter were killed in the Dubas war zone in May 2014. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more UQ Life Abroad content.